You're listening to Proselytize. Or Proselytize. back with another episode of proselytize or apostatize we're here trying to proselytize our favorite atheist jordan (laughs) he's my token atheist friend so like if i'm talking with my conservative christian friends and i want to sound edgy i'm like so yeah i was texting my atheist friend jordan the other day you know so i appreciate you being there for me there and and, and providing that Uh, jordan's been on our show a couple times uh, before and actually uh, t- to give him credit this is actually the second time around for this discussion we're talking about the Kalam cosmological argument which is uh, one of the most popular arguments for the existence of God made popular by William Lane Craig and we had this discussion earlier and about halfway through the discussion bro David you just lost it didn't you like oh, yeah he, he had this stack of papers about this thick and it didn't have a outline or didn't have a um, a table of contents I guess and couldn't find his spot in it yeah and, and so well I mean to be fair I'm pretty sure you were sick too yeah I was, yeah. yeah so and the whole family actually the wife was yeah. sick the kids yeah. were sick I started feeling sick in the middle of the podcast and yeah I mean it just it spiraled from there I think we were, we were actually pretty engaged in in the first yeah. half yeah yeah, so if you want, if you're an atheist and you're really big into those YouTube videos where the atheist makes the Christian look stupid, you can hit up Jordan here and, and he'll sell you that video on the black market. Um, so if you're interested in that, just go ahead and hit him up on Facebook or whatever. <laughs> or you can just watch this video in an hour. Boom. Uh, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, snap. snap. Yeah, I just All wanted right. to say I really appreciate you coming out here again due to that. And I appreciate that a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. Very Christ-like of you, George. Just virtue sig- signaling. <laughs> yeah. Virtue sig- signaling. Yeah, so we're going to be getting into that uh, discussion a little bit later, um, setting up. We're going to actually be showing the the YouTube video that William Lane Craig put out called The Kalam Cosmological Argument, and then we're just going to go through it and discuss it. Um, but first of all, what have you guys been up to recently? Uh, well, my oldest daughter started dating officially, you know, parent-sanctioned and whatnot uh, recently. So I chaperoned her first date with her boyfriend. Um, you chaperoned it. I thought that's just like a thing for fundamentalist, you know, conservative homeschool Christian parents. Well, I was a homeschooled fundamentalist when I was that age, I guess. That's but, where you uh, got the idea. Nah, well, it's just, you know, trying to teach her integrity and, you know, you have to earn trust. So she's in that process. And it's not like I was like sitting next to the guy like this the whole time. You know? So, Mr. So Atheist, what's, right? what do you mean by integrity? No, I'm just joking. Uh, no, I'm just joking. You have integrity. No. Yeah. Um, so what's an atheist's values for his daughter? Well, my primary goal is to make sure that she grows up as a well-adjusted, successful member in society who has a good idea of a health relationship and so all my boundaries are solely for that purpose so like um when she was before messing around with guys who treated her like garbage that wasn't cool because they're not because you are messing around with guys but because they're treating you like garbage you know and so my boundaries are are mainly focused towards that you know and not committing herself emotionally when she's just not mature enough for that 
And you need to go along to make sure the dude's not treating her like crap? No, I need to go along to make sure she's not jumping his bones because she's a 14-year-old. You know? Okay, so you do have a problem with that, I'm guessing. Well, o- only because she's not ready for that. Like, I don't have any kind of moral problem with it, but she she isn't ready for that kind of um, physical interaction yet. No, emotionally, she's not. So when's she going to be ready? I'd imagine in a couple years. 16? So, well, I mean, I would prefer she do it when she's 18, has a job, 18. and is out of college, but, you know. <laughs> okay. You know. All right. I hear Interesting. You yeah, cool. So, been up to anything else, Jordan or David? I have a chastity belt if you need it. You know, there, I do have like a couple Like on of you them. right now? No, not what? on me. Not on me, but I do have one. You have a but what? No, I'm just joking. A chastity, a chastity belt. belt. What is that? It's, a, oh it's the metal belt with the key to <laughs> keep all your stuff. You know, That's from, a thing? Yeah. It used I to be in the, in, the, in the dark ages. I think oh, it's is that what they made? Now. Is that yeah. what they made the boys wear to sleep so that they wouldn't? No, it was no, usually if, for, for girls. I heard that there's... <laughs> what? <laughs> if, if, you, if you read, if you watch uh, Men in Tights, the Robin Hood, there's, there's a chastity okay, belt. Okay, I think I might have heard about that. Um, Interesting. I'm learning a lot of new stuff in so, this episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I've been. <laughs> my wife's over there dying laughing. <laughs> you want to come and, and give your thoughts on this, Brett, babe? <laughs> no. <laughs> Anyways, so I've been pretty busy. Um, my landlord uh, is selling my house out from under me, which is good because it pushed us out of the nest, and we're actually buying a house now. My um, great grandmother just got moved to the nursing home she's like in her 90s and so the family's given us a deal on the house that's that's pretty cool so this year we're having a baby we're buying a house um just got back from india um trying to grow like a landscaping empire and make tons of money so that i can do mission work the american dream right there yeah the plenty of land out here yeah the american (laughs) dream so that i can use that money to do what i actually want to do but it is a cool job because like i can mow and listen to podcasts all day so like if i wouldn't be doing lawn care we might not be sitting here because doing lawn care is, is like the most brainless thing you can do with your life uh so you need good audio material to listen to and i listened to so many podcasts i was like dude I should make some of these, and that's why we're here. You know, you know, I do have Powerful testimony. I do have some way to help you in that. I got a lot of leaves out in my front yard and backyard. <laughs> Come you give you a quote. If I'm, if I'm <laughs> driving in an hour and a half, it's going to be, gonna be, gonna a, be a good one. It's going to be a big quote. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, hey, let's get into this. Uh, you oh, were going to no, say something? No, go All ahead right. if you want to get into it. Let's get into this. The Kalam cosmological argument. The, the first word Kalam uh, comes from uh, a... Was it a Muslim group yeah, it, back in the day? It, it was. I'm not sure if it's like a school of thought or a particular philosopher, but it the Kalam argument came from Islamic philosophers in the late Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. Al Ghazali is is okay. the proponent he of Kalam. Okay, so basically, um, it's Kalam is is a term that's talking about um, uh, discussion. So that and sometimes. Islamic uh, scholars refer to it as the Quran. So, uh, yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, it's a term that is for conversation, basically. Okay. So this argument was first popularized by Muslims, and then William Lane Craig, a Christian apologist, came and uh, made it popular more recently. And now the second word, cosmological, I guess, has to do with the cosmos or the universe, um, has to do with the origins of the universe. Mm-hmm. And so that's what this argument is about. And it's, we're going to be getting into a lot of 
really crazy physics, some really intense philosophy. And so when these guys are going at it and, and something doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to jump in and interrupt them. So you're welcome. For those of you who, <laughs> who really want things explained better, uh, we're going to be doing that as we go through it. Uh, but before we get into the discussion, let's watch the video. It's on YouTube. It's called The Kalam Cosmological Argument. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin, or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy, and that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, proved that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. 
And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful, much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. So there we go. That's the the logical syllogism for the Kalam cosmological argument. And how uh, a logical syllogism like this works is if the first two premises are true, then the conclusion naturally follows. So, for example, um, if I would say that uh, everyone who's sitting on this chair, their name is Titus, and that's as the first premises, and then say that I am sitting on this chair as the second premise, then the conclusion would be my name is Titus. That's how it works. And so that's sort of how this argument works, that the uh, everything that begins to exist has a cause is the first premise, and the second premise is that the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And then he goes on to explain why that cause is the God of the Bible. But that's, if we get, if we get Jordan that far tonight, <laughs> I think we've made, made progress, bro. And, and it's also part of a, a cumulative case for the existence of God, so it's one of the arguments that William Lane Craig uses and then a lot of apologists use. So, so first of all, Jordan, you told me that you actually do grant that the argument is valid if the premises are are true, right? Yeah, like 95%. There's a particular way you might define begins to exist, and you could potentially run into a, a big, or not begging the question, a um, special pleading case, depending on how you work your definitions. But it's valid enough for us anyway. That's pretty getting pretty esoteric. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, what what this conversation is going to come down to then is whether these two premises are correct or not. Um, so, David, let's come to you, and you can just give a little bit of a, a defense for you know that video and for kind of from your perspective why these two premises are correct, why the argument is valid, and then we'll come back to you. Yeah, I think it's a good deductive argument that I'm fine with. I think you can know things deductively and inductively. Um, I think you can make arguments either way. I think what people get hung up on, and I don't blame them sometimes, is that when they add to the argument. So, like the implications of the argument. Okay, so I can see where there's debates there. I think it takes more argumentation to, to, to come to that conclusion. But um, I, I can see how people can reason to it, but ultimately I think just to just for the simple fact of the argument itself, these three premises, I think they're religiously neutral, and I would say that they're incredibly simple. Um, I don't think you have to prove 100% that they exist. I don't think we can prove anything 100%. I'm sure uh, Jordan would agree to that. So um, I've heard a lot that you know it contains fallacies in the structure. I mean, it is made by a professional philosopher, so I think we can avoid a lot of those things. Um, for example, it says, uh, I've heard a lot of people claim it, commits a composition fallacy, which is basically say, inferring that something is true of the whole from the fact that it's true of one part of the whole. Um, I've also heard, and, and that's not the case. I mean, we give good premises of why we think each premise is true. Um, another one is equivocation, uh, an equivocation fallacy, which is uh, when a term is used in two or more different senses within a single argument. Um, we do distinguish between causes, and that's what it usually refers to. Um, so I don't think I have a really much problem with the argument. So, 
Okay, cool. Yeah. All right, so coming to the first premise, uh, Jordan, uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Um, do you reject that premise? Yes. Okay, How? What? to what percent of certainty do you reject that <laughs> premise? Um, so just to be clear, and before we get into this, I want to say, uh, because this is going to touch on physics, like you said, I'm not a physicist. I am an engineer. Um, I get my physics from physicists, and I recommend everyone else do that too. So I'm going to, at some point, quote a lot of physicists. I'm going to give my sources out. I strongly encourage everyone to check me and trust the physicists, not this engineer. Um, but I don't say that the argument is necessarily false. I don't know that it's false. Um, what I am saying is that the first two premises are not true a priori. A priori meaning uh, just from reason without experience. Um, so like one plus one equals two is true a priori. You don't need to get rocks to prove it. Um, and I don't think we can know enough to say that they're true a posteriori, meaning after experience with evidence. And therefore, um, it's not that I know that it is false. It's that we don't know enough to say it's true. Okay, but you would say that you're more confident that they're false than that they are true, correct? I'd say that I don't have sufficient evidence to believe they're true. Which is another way of saying that, right? <laughs> uh, uh, it, there's some nuance there. All right. All right. So go ahead with the first premise. Uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause and explain why you, you think that there's not enough evidence. Maybe riffing off some of the evidences that were given in the video. So um, I think we, we mentioned earlier videos ago when we were talking about the resurrection. You asked me what the hardest argument was or the best argument was. And I said the quam cosmological argument because it's the most common sense. It sounds very reasonable. And uh, the first clause sounds very reasonable. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. That's what we experience in our everyday. It's true of bicycles and coffee cups and tables. Um, but we have to be careful using the intuition we built up in this world and projecting it without modification to the foundations of the universe. There's, we shouldn't necessarily be confident that what is true of this monster can is true of, you know, 0.1 seconds after the Big Bang. So that leads into quantum mechanics. Uh, quantum mechanics is arguably the most successful theoretical framework ever devised by man. Its predictions are wonderfully um, accurate, and the math definitely works. And for most physicists, that's enough. They're part of the shut up and calculate school of physics they don't care why it works it just works mm -hmm. um, but quantum mechanics has a very peculiar feature and that feature is that things evolve deterministically meaning you can say this has caused this which caused this which caused this they evolve deterministically when left on their own but once you make an observation they no longer act deterministically it changes the system in a non-deterministic fashion can you make an observation can you explain that yeah, so uh, one of the classic experiments is the double slit experiment where you shoot photons through two slits, mm -hmm. and it can go through either one. Um, and if you don't look at it, you don't observe, don't have anything capturing where the photon is going, it behaves one way. A certain, it has a set of ways it can behave. But if you put a sensor there, make an observation, it changes the way the photon acts. So is this like if the tree fell in the woods and no one was there to hear it? Did it <laughs> kind of. Are we going back to kind that? Kind of. Uh, so it's called the observation problem, and it it it's not very clear what exactly constitutes an observation, but it is, it is definitely known, excuse me, that observing a system changes the system. Interesting. Yes, it does. It's baffling. 
Yeah. That is super As, weird. How did they know if they didn't observe it that it was different? Well, you it's not that you can never see any of its effects. So for the double slit experiment, you have a photosensitive uh, panel on the back, and you can see where the right. photons hit, but you don't watch which slit it goes through. Dude, that that's that must yeah. be proof for God right there. He's messing it's, with that. It's crazy. And uh, as I believe it was Richard Feynman, I think, that said, uh, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. It's just very counterintuitive. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so once you make that observation, things no longer behave deterministically. They will go to some set of possibilities, and not you can't predict it. And it may even be that it's not that we don't have the devices or the know-how to predict it. It may even be impossible to make those kind of predictions. Okay. So that raises the question, is it that reality is at its core non-deterministic? Is it statistical? Or is that non-determinism merely apparent and there is a deterministic framework below that we just don't have access to yet and may not? So many physicists have tried to figure out what's really going on and they've developed several interpretations. The Standard interpretation, the first one of the first ones, and the ones you'll learn at university if you take a s class on quantum mechanics, is the Copenhagen interpretation. This interpretation says that the loss of determinism is real. It is, in fact, real. There, the universe is not deterministic. It things happen with a probability. That's just the way it is. Um, so things don't have a defined cause, and thus things can and do begin to exist all the time without a cause. They just happen with some probability. Now, that is one interpretation. The matter is far from settled. There are other physicists who are unsatisfied with the Copenhagen interpretation who have come up with their own interpretations. You've got many worlds. You've got pilot wave. Um, they have their own peculiarities. Some of them are deterministic. Some of them are not. At the moment, the simple fact is we don't know which, if any, of these interpretations is correct. Um, so, But since the default setting, uh, if you will, of quantum mechanics, the Copenhagen interpretation, and some of the alternatives are non-deterministic, it can't be true a priori that you can't have some, that everything that begins to exist must have a cause. If that were the case, you could just throw out all those interpretations, but even their most ardent detractors don't do that. Um, so you'd have to show it with evidence a posteriori and we just yeah. don't know so i'm gonna try to rephrase what you said in english <laughs> <laughs> you're saying that if you go back to when the big bang happened to within a split second of when it happened and you're not observing it that things might not be deterministic well, and, and what you mean by deterministic is that they might not need a cause for the effect is well, that what you're saying not exactly because so I'm dealing with it more generically right here. I'm about to go into the Big Bang, but uh, the way a syllogism works, if, if either of the premises is false, then the argument breaks down. So, but you are speaking to the first premise, right? Yeah, the first okay. premise being that everything that begins to exist has a cause. I'm saying that's not true a priori, yeah. so you'd have to give evidence for it. And generally So that we need to give evidence it. for something th that is happening when we don't observe it. That, that it, it's always <laughs> deterministic in that case. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically you'd have to show that things like the Copenhagen interpretation and whatnot aren't true. Because okay. you're, you're asserting that everything that begins to exist has a cause. I'm saying, well, maybe they don't, and here's a, logic, here's a framework that says they don't. So you'd have to, get, you'd have to deal with that right. in order to, to show that that premise is true. Okay, so Copenhagen is our problem. Yeah, <laughs> but not the day. All right, David, what you got for me? All bro? right, man. So basically, we say that something doesn't come from nothing. This is my side of the story, not 
particularly Jordan's. Uh, there's some issues that I would have with his, but um, basically we say that something doesn't come from nothing. Um, if if saying that something can come from nothing, we th I would think you would land in a formal contradiction or denial of reason. Um, and even the term coming coming into or coming from nothing, the term coming itself is a causal term, and that term is another form of having a cause. So nothing has no property, so attributing creative power to, to it is a formal contradiction. Um, Australian philosopher J.L. Mackey once said that the causal principle is confirmed by our experience, so why not accept it as reasonable uh, and, and possible or plausible? Um, the law, th this causal principle is never falsified, it's always verified. Um, we can't do science without it. Um, to deny the causal principle is to actually use it and affirm it, which I think to, if you're gonna deny it, you're gonna be jumping into brute facts. And at that point, we're jumping into philosophical skepticism at that point. And, and philosophical skepticism is like something like akin to say that um, we're in the matrix, right? Or why not we just be solipsist, right? So um, um, I think obviously Craig gives some ideas about denying this premise is worse than doing magic. Um, so I, I agree with that to an extent too. Um, and yeah, I think that on, on when it comes to the Copenhagen interpretation, Robert Coons also says that um, every transition has causal antecedents. Um, so I think we got that English cosmologist, uh, John Barrow also says something similar that the, the quantum vacuum isn't nothing. So it is something, I think that we know enough. Many physicists also think things like virtual particles are law governed, borrowing uh, energy from, our energy and dependent upon space and time. So hold up, virtual, par virtual particles borrowing energy, yeah. that, that's not hypothetical, that's, that's established. That's yeah. Can you explain so, a little bit what virtual particles are and how that applies to this? So virtual particles are particles that pop, they, he said that he was saying that pop in and out of existence. There's a lot of, lot of stuff with them. They kill each other. So, <laughs> so basically what stuff. virtual particles are is they're particles that pop out of a space. Um, it's always yeah. a particle and an antiparticle. They exist mm -hmm. for a very short period of time and then annihilate mm -hmm. each other. They annihilate, yeah, they well, annihilate each other. In space. Yeah. In space. Also yeah. within atoms. Yeah, so within. like the, the nucleus of the, the, the insides of a neutron is most of your mass is virtual particles. Um, so it's not a neutron or proton. It, well, inside the it's, neutron. So the neutron is, is composed of three quarks, and we're getting a little far afield, but yeah. the mass of the three quarks, if you add it up, isn't the mass of the neutron. There's, that balance is virtual particles. Okay, okay, okay. So, but, but anyway, so, it, so, it's not yeah. that virtual particles come out. Of, it depends on what you mean by nothing. Yeah. Uh, virtual particles in and of itself, they need energy and space in order to exist. Yeah, so, and, and that's, what, that's what I would say is that, you know, nothing is the absence of anything. You know, um, it's it's a state of non-being. So that's where we'd probably have a little disagreement yeah, so on let, there. So, but but just to finish it is we don't have a working model of of quantum mechanics, and I think that's where the problem lies. I, I mean, we don't. I mean, like you said, if you think you understand it, you don't. We don't have a truly working model of it. So so overall, I think the premise holds. Mm -hmm. But well, so. First of all, yeah. I, I don't assert that there was ever nothing. Um, and of course, the, yeah. The, the yeah, philosopher's I nothing, the nothing where there's no space, no time, no laws of physics, no energy, from that from which only God can create. Um, I, I'm skeptical that such a, a state ever existed. Um, and so if you want to say that nothing could ever come from nothing, I'm down with that, but then why, what, by what right do we say that nothing ever existed? So 
if having the laws of physics isn't nothing, I'm happy with that, then I guess so, there wasn't nothing. So do you have any idea of what existed before the Big Bang? Well, I've actually uh, like to talk no? about <laughs> Alexander. Well, I mean, no, there's go ideas. Ahead, go ahead. No, no, I hear you. Um, so, another, so a model that talks about something coming from nothing or without a cause um, actually comes from William Lane Craig's favorite physicist, uh, Alexander. What Blank. do you know? He taught of the infamous Bordet-Guth-Lincoln theorem. Okay. So uh, Lincoln has a model of his own. He wrote about it in 2015 in Inference. The article was called The Beginning of the Universe. It's a really great article, very accessible to a layman. Um, basically, his model is, in short, excuse me, gravitational fields have negative energy, whereas you and me and that cup have positive energy. And... Um, it's conceivable, and in fact, according to most physicists, very likely, that the sum total of the energy, if you take all the gravity and all the things, and add it together, it's zero. So there's net zero energy. And if that's the case, you could get the universe, according to Lincoln, as the ultimate free lunch. You wouldn't have any kind of conservation of energy problems, just having the universe appear with some probability. And in quantum mechanics, that which isn't prohibited does happen with some probability, eventually. So it... it if it isn't if it doesn't violate a law, it will happen with so some. So does it violate a law that God exists? Um, <laughs> All right, let's not get into so, that. <laughs> and it just so happens that the most probable universes in his model are ones that have a very small initial size and a large vacuum energy. Which, lo, lo, lo and behold, that's us. So, from there, eternal inflation would be free to continue, and you'd get what we have. So, um, this is a model made by uh, physicists that William Lane Craig quotes all the time. Absolutely. Where. Um, the universe has no cause. It just came with a probability. Is this model correct? No idea. Lincoln <laughs> doesn't know either. Um, we, it, so it's not that this model is correct because we don't have the right model. It's cutting-edge physics. Um, the point is that you, c you can construct a model that's plausible, that is consistent with our present understanding of physics, that doesn't conform to this premise and so it's pr it's simply premature to say well you can't have anything without a cause well Kay. what about this model you know yeah so before we come back to you david i, I do want to ask you you uh, you, uh, you do do you think that the universe uh, that's kind of getting into the second premise but you obviously think that something existed for an eternity right well if you're asking if you're, I you're, have you're saying money. that you're saying that nothing never existed therefore something always existed correct I, th I think that if you define nothing as no laws, no potentiality, anything, then yes, I, I would, I struggle to think of how that could have ever existed. So therefore something always existed. Right. Are you saying that that something always existed within time? Well, that depends on the model that you're looking at. There are a variety of different models that govern that period of time and we don't know which is correct. So the simple, the short answer is I don't know. Okay. So this brings us to the question, and this is a big part of this argument, is whether an actual infinity is possible, right? Um, because in order for you to have something that has always existed, <laughs> there has to be an actual infinity, right? Uh, <laughs> and I know you have a lot yeah. prepared for that. Well, yeah, so. I do. But but I mean, you're getting to a far foot here, <laughs> I, yeah. I think. Um, so I mean. Uh, when you talk about Vilenkin, yeah, Vilenkin believes in quantum tunneling and, and, mm. and certain things like that, but you got to understand Vilenkin in light of Vilenkin too. He thinks the laws of nature are also platonic, transcendent, metaphysical. He thinks they exist outside of time and space and so on. So you got to kind of like take everything that he said over the years 
with a grain of salt, but I mean, not with a grain of salt. He do, he do, knows a lot, but you have to understand him in light of, of Lincoln. So I think Vilenkin has also said that, yeah, you know, according to their theorem, the BVG theorem, I'm just, BGB. I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to like get too deep into this right now because we're probably going to cover more of it later. But I mean, they say that past incompleteness requires boundaries, right? So that's the crux of their, their theory, right? So um, I think if you understand that, he's basically saying that there's no laws that are forbidding, like you said, a, uh, a universe from nothing. So he's also said in interviews that it's a deep mystery, you know, that it could have come from nothing at all. <laughs> you know, he said he does posit the philosophers nothing sometimes. He doesn't hold to it, I don't think. But this is what these cosmologists do. I mean, a certain handful of them, especially the ones that I've I've heard. But I think they also have a lot of bias why they don't want there to be a beginning to the universe. Um, Sean Carroll states that it would be the end of science in an interview with uh, in Closer to the Truth, which was actually really interesting. I learned a lot um, from from all those guys. They were interviewing like several cosmologists. Roger Penrose, who came up with the Penrose Singularity Theorem, um, which is a singularity theory that projects a a uh, um, a beginning. Um, he says that he doesn't want there to be a beginning either because he grew up with the steady state model, so, and he loves that model. <laughs> and so th he does, and he does say that. So it's really interesting to hear some of the reasons why they don't want there to be a beginning. But I don't think I've heard any of them say that what we have observationally points to a beginning. However, when you're at that zero to one billionth of a second. It's all speculation. It's all speculation. So, right, because so it could. The, I mean, I still think that the Kalam holds overall, for the simple fact is that they have good reasons, and we have good reasons to believe that the universe actually did begin to exist. But you don't, because you don't know. Because, so, the, because the, now, Big Bang cosmology right. doesn't include the Bang. The, I'm not saying it does. It would have to if you're going to rely on that to say the universe began. Well, it depends on how you're defining the Big Bang. I mean, if it, even if it just if it came into existence at a singularity and then grew from there, depending on the interpretation, then you would have an absolute beginning because a singularity is often referred to even as a nothing point. Well, so I mean, and general relativity does predict a singularity. Okay, so, so that, but anyways, that, we're getting too far afield. So that's getting to premise two. Yeah, know, we can we, we can just go to premise. Yeah, two, let's right? get into well, premise two. Well, I mean, two. I was gonna um, comment on a couple more things, but that's fine. I, no, it's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> we got yeah, we got to keep rolling here. So premise two: the universe began to exist. Jordan, why do you reject some of those arguments that were put forward in the video? Okay, so William Lane Craig always appeals to Big Bang cosmology, and that that's the idea that the universe, um, the observable universe, we can see began in a hot, dense state, very small, low entropy. But it's kind of a dirty secret, I mean, to non-cosmologists anyway, that the Big Bang doesn't include the bang. It, it includes only everything that came after it. The Big Bang itself is a complete mystery. Um, it's a placeholder for we don't know, to quote Sean Carroll. So the prediction itself, like you said, comes from general relativity, which of course is a great, greatly um, successful theory. It is a classical description of how gravity works, classical meaning not including quantum mechanics. But the thing is we know that qu class classical general relativity does not work on small scales where quantum effects dominate. And that is exactly what's going on at the beginning of the universe. And so it does in fact predict a singularity, that's correct, but a singularity is a sign that there's something you don't understand going on. It Scientists are hard at work understanding uh, quantum gravity. We're nowhere near that kind of solution. Um, so 
basically using general relativity, even though it is a great theory, to make predictions inside the region of the Big Bang is to use it in a region we know it doesn't work. So you're basically, it's predicting its own downfall, in a sense. Um, and would that be a, sort of the same response, you know, some of the other arguments like the universe is expanding, you know, the redshift from, you know. Well, the universe is absolutely expanding. Yeah, sure. yeah. There's no yeah. question about that. But like using that as an argument to say the universe began to exist, or is that, is your response, would your response be the same for that argument as like. Well, so, so the universe expansion thing, the BGB theorem, um, that, that kind of ties in there because what, so the Borde-Guth-Vilenkin theorem says that um, any universe, any cosmology that has been expanding on average over its lifetime m is past incomplete. It, it has to have a beginning, basically. Um, so that, that, that's great as far as it goes. But um, there's a couple issues with it in terms of what it applies to. First of all, the BGV theorem is a classical theorem, meaning it only governs classical space-times. It's predictions don't cover the quantum mechanical region. Now, it may be that those predictions are valid there, but that has yet been, that's yet to be shown. Okay, so, so the BGV doesn't apply to quantum mechanics. It only applies to classical space. Can I help you out just a, it's an incompleteness, it's an incompleteness model. I mean, and, and because of that, there are things that you can postulate further, such as like, what are you saying, classical space time and so forth. So you can actually, there you have models that can't evade it, right? Well, it models yeah. that it doesn't apply to. Yeah, you know, well, like, yeah. like there are other or evade it. <laughs> there are other cosmological models that don't expand over their entire lifetime. So you have that that just throws it out right there. Um, you've got the Carol Chen model, the Aguirre Grattan model, tons of models that have, for instance, Aguirre Grattan has eternal collapse, Big Bang, eternal expansion. So BGV doesn't apply because it hasn't been expanding on average over its lifetime, and. So unless, lest you think that I'm misunderstanding the theorem or applying it inaccurately, allow me to quote a physicist. I don't know whether the universe had a beginning. I suspect that the universe didn't have a beginning. It's very likely eternal, but nobody knows. That physicist is Alan Guth, one of the authors of the BGV theorem. Now, how on earth could one of the authors of the theorem, the theorem that supposedly says the universe has to be finite, possibly think the universe is eternal? Well, the simple answer is that's not what the theorem says. Guth thinks that the universe is eternal for other reasons. Vilenkin thinks he's wrong. Which one's right? We don't know. <laughs> but the BGV is not the be-all, end-all. And even Aaron Wall, who's a prominent cr Christian physicist, agrees. You know, he, he agrees that the BGV is not the proof that the universe has a beginning. Yes, but, you know, Alan Guth also states throughout the years that the universe probably began to exist, but he wouldn't place a large bet on it. <laughs> so, I mean, his, it, his, it, all his papers, went, the, the quote you just, to be fair, the quote you just quoted was him holding up a sign after the Carol uh, mm -hmm. Craig or, debate, right? It, so so the, he never wrote a paper defining what, what he actually believed on that theory. All his past stuff, all his stuff that he's written beforehand suggests that inflation could not be eternal into the past. All of that. So who knows what he actually thinks? Well, well it here's, doesn't matter here, what well, his hold on, opinion hold on, is. Hold on. Well, he has evidence for that opinion, which gives credence to the evidence that the universe does have a beginning and good reasons why we believe it has a beginning. Um, and I'll get into more of that, that too. But just because he said that then doesn't mean that he holds to that now. Now, I know that we, the reason he was at that conference was to support Sean Carroll because Guth said himself he was working with Sean Carroll on the reverse era of time. Now, even Sean Carroll didn't even defend that position in the, in, the, in the debate because Carroll's model is still admittedly by Carroll 
incomplete. So course, these models that models you are, are saying, yeah, these models that are, you are saying are all incomplete. They all have their issues. They uh -huh. argue with each other. Valenkin shoots down Penrose's cyclitic universes. Yeah. It's funny, but it, but it's that's, it's science, right? Science, right? I understand that, and I get that. But we do have good singularity theorems, and they're still very popular, such as the Penrose Plus model, which is one of the, the ones Wall quotes, which he says, given the generalized second law of thermodynamics, you can prove, um, he says that you can prove um, a beginning under the generalized second law of thermodynamics and he's i mean i got a whole list here of things that that he said he also said when he was reviewing relevant physics to the uh that that involved this question of whether there is a beginning five out of seven five out of seven say that there is a, that that the the beginning is probable it's very probable that, that it did have a beginning one said it did not and then the, then the next one said you know you could just interpret it the way you want. So Aaron Wall gives us very good evidence that the universe did have a beginning in the finite past. So there's a lot of work that's been done on this, but there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And that I agree with you with. It's, but we're not in the state where things are almost wrapped up and it's just a few fringe guys who are saying it doesn't have a beginning. But, but it, it doesn't matter if it's all wrapped up. The, the point is, all you have to show is that you have good reason from what we know now. is exactly what Wall quoted when he said that... Uh, let me see if I have the quote here. He actually said that uh, with all the information we have now, it probably did begin to exist, and but we're not certain. That's his opinion. And exactly. There are other equally informed physicists who have the opposite opinion. It doesn't matter what their opinion is. But, it matters what's in published work and what is established yeah, in Jordan, observations. Yeah, but Jordan, the whole point is, is that Aaron Wall has good evidence to believe that his theorem is true, which makes the Kalam's second premise tenable. Oh, so what that so what you're saying is your second premise isn't that it's true. Your second premise is it's, Aaron it's Wall says good. it's probably no, true. No, no. Well, my second premise is we could have good reasons to believe that the second premise is you true. I don't have to prove a hundred percent. I can't prove everything a hundred percent. But we have good reasons. The second premise of the universe probably began to exist. I, I, I would, I would say that. I, I would say that right? it's all in terms of probability. Craig admits that from the very start when he gives this lecture. I mean, you've heard the debates just as well as I have. He's come out and he said, you know. All we have to have is good grounds to believe that this is probably true. So, I mean, yeah, we're talking opinions here. We're talking opinions of cosmologists. This is an, this is an active region of research that we just don't know enough to say. So, this physicist thinks this thing. This physicist thinks that thing. What does the published research says? The published research says we don't know because we don't have a theory of quantum gravity. We don't have a model for what happened before. We don't have any of these models yet. Again, the published work says that this cosmologist has good reason to believe that it probably did have a beginning. Most published works actually say that the universe probably did begin to exist. However, we're not certain. And that's where we're at today. That's where the debate is. Did it come from a small, dense state, or did, was there a beginning? I mean, we're all hiding behind a billionth of a second. Now, I understand anything beyond that is speculation, but there's good reasons to believe that the universe had the beginning still. Now, I, I, the, the field may never be complete. If we're looking at Aguirre-Grayton's model, we'll never be able to push past that barrier to see if it's real. Um, even in Carroll's model, the meta-galaxy, is, is, is a closed autonomous thing. So, I mean, we'll never get past that barrier to observe it. So we are speculating at this point, but, but all the evidence we can trace points to a beginning. So it goes backwards in time. So Th things yeah. are things Anyways, are getting things are getting real fun. feisty here. It's what, fun, what I'm hearing what I'm hearing Jordan say is that the 
it's not conclusive yet. Nobody knows what I'm hearing David say is, I have this guy, this guy, this guy saying it's probable. And so, you know, we, we can go back and forth here. But one thing I did want to touch on. No, I, I will. I do agree with Jordan that it's not. Yeah, yeah. But you're just you saying you, you would say it's it's more probable based on what these on guys the, are saying. Evidence. I mean, from um, what from, certain guys are saying. From, <laughs> from Guth yeah. to uh, that interview to Closer on the Truth with Carol, he said it probably did. But you know what? I don't want it to because it's going to be the end of science. And he did put together a, a model that's speculative. And it has a lot of issues with it. It's not complete. I mean, he admits it. Every model is going to be speculative at this point. Of course, absolutely. Because we don't have a theory of quantum gravity. We don't have a full theory. So, But if quantum gravity does hold to Wall's model, then we do have a, a working theory. Um, if, if, if Carol's model completely works out, then guess what? I'm wrong, and the Kalam fails. So, right. so, so my, my idea is totally is that there is good reason that's to stand as of now that the universe probably did begin to exist. And we've come a long way since historically we thought it was always in a steady static state. You know, so um, now we, we do have more evidence leaning towards the universe beginning to exist. So let's talk about uh, a big issue that often comes up, and it's the existence of an actual infinity. Um, we didn't even touch on that yet. So, David, why don't you give us a, a, a kind of explain why this even applies to this argument? Um, explain what you know, an actual infinity versus a, you know possible infinity or hypothetical infinity is, and give some reasons why you reject that there can be an actual. Infinity. Okay, so I would reject. Maybe everyone all. should take a, a cold shower, and we'll come back. And we'll, we'll come be, back. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, you, this is fun. This is great, guys. <laughs> um, we have two deductive arguments, actually. Excuse me. You didn't call him. A, you didn't call him a nasty person yet. He's not so a nasty I'm, I'm person. <laughs> he's very generous, and he does make a lot of good points. Yeah. Um, cool. Anyway, anyways, back to so, infinity. Um, enough complimenting and hugging Jordan right now from afar. Um, I, we would say that the universe doesn't begin to exist. Because there's, there's an, it's impossible, A, to count to infinity and backwards to infinity. Jordan's heard this one before. Um, also, we use two, two deductive arguments that I'll give real quick, okay? And then maybe we'll, we'll piggyback off of those. One is an actual infinite cannot exist. An actual uh, infinite temporal regress of events is an actual infinite. Therefore, an infinite of te uh, temporal regress of events cannot exist. Did that make sense, yeah. that last one? Okay. When you say regressive events, you mean backwards in time forever, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So basically, almost had the same problem as last time. <laughs> we base that on the term infinity itself. The term infinity is a denial of self-identity. Um, it's never-ending, always bigger than itself, and more than itself, or more than itself, and at the same time, incomplete. Um, if a thing is not more than itself, it is complete and therefore finite. Um, so nothing actually is infinite. Um, if you can reference it then it is always finite by logical necessity. Um, so yeah, we, there's several models that, that we use to prove these theorems, right? So you have the infinite hotel, um, which is Craig's theory. You have the Grim Reaper paradox, which I think is really good. Have you heard of that one? I believe so. Yeah. Explain, it's, explain it's at least one of those well, real do, quick. Do the hotel, because that's the, the one. Hotel. Hil Hilbert's hotel. Okay, so hotel. Let me try to give this in a nutshell, because I'm pretty sure we're getting close to time. Yeah, we're going to have to wrap up um, here soon. So just give your, and then we'll hear Jordan's uh, response. You might, have a, you might be able to explain this one even in more <laughs> detail. It but it. Any, anyways, <laughs> it's basically a thought experiment that shows that if there's an infinite number of rooms in a hotel, then not only is there a vacancy, but it's always full. And if, and if you start deducting uh, what is it like the odd number of people you'll still have an infinity and it, it, it resides off the idea that you know when you start subtracting from infinity you get odd logical absurdities basically because infinity is not a number it's not
and it's not part of the set of natural numbers, which right. is um, which is a, so, another evidence against. So you're asserting it. sounds pretty good, Jordan. You're asserting <laughs> that an actual infinity can't exist, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what he says. And your evidence for that is Hilbert's hotel. Um, that and the Grim. I think the Grim Marie prepared so is even better. Yeah, I think there's a lot. Yeah. So there's no logical contradiction in having actual infinities. You have there's a mathematical school, the Cantor and Set theory, that governs that. Um, so we can deal with infinities just fine in terms of math. Um, therefore, it's not true a priori that actual infinities are logically contradictory. Now, it may very well be true that, given the laws of nature and the way that things work, you can't have an actual infinity in nature. That may very well be true, but you'd have to show that. Uh, you can't just say it. You know, the intuition isn't good enough. Um, and when it comes to things like Hilbert's Hotel, uh, that... So basically, the idea is that the time would work the same way as the natural numbers. One, then two, then three, then four. Always the same, um, the same segment, the, the same order, the same um, size. But that's a strict finitist vision, which we have no reason to think is true. So strict finitism is that says that time comes in discrete blocks. Temporal becoming, right? Uh, at, its, at its base, you have quanta, if you want, of time, yeah. right? But we have no reason to think that that's true. Uh, so that time doesn't necessarily have to be like the natural numbers. Time could be like the real numbers. The real numbers uh, have are, are called dense, so you, no matter where you put it, there's always a number in the middle. Sure. And that's the picture that classical and quantum physics treat time as. That doesn't mean that that's the way time is. It might be a useful approximation, but the point is that you can't just say strict finitism is the way, way it is. You'd have to show that, and I don't think we have any good reason to think uh, that. Are you serious? I mean, you're, you would deny temporal becoming. I would deny that the strict finitist picture of time is necessarily I true. would say you couldn't demonstrate that either. I could, the B theory of time is what you're basically alluding to. I don't have to show that it's true. You're the one making the assertion in the argument. You're no, the I think we can show that the ace theory of time is true because that's how we experience time. And that's obvious in, in that, that we experience time on an A theory. We experience temporal becoming. Just things coming, we understand there's a difference between past, present, and future. We can record past events that are no longer in existence. Now, unless you, unless you can say, oh, no, you can prove that they're actually in existence because they exist on the same timeline or on the same way. I'm not saying the past doesn't exist. What I'm saying is that time isn't necessarily strict finitist. It isn't necessarily this moment, then this moment, then this moment, then this moment. It could be a dense spectrum of moments, in which case Hilbert's Hotel wouldn't apply because it wouldn't have the structure of natural numbers. And well, we know that even in set theory, I'm sorry, but go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. Are you done? Yeah, okay. So we know that even in, in set theory that uh, um, temporal classes are purge classes. Okay, Cantor even himself said that the the to, to demonstrate the, is the infinitesimal, I'm sorry, these are big words for him, from him, um, that it's demonstrably inconsistent. Okay, Edward Kasner, now I understand what you said earlier about mathematical existence. We can show mm -hmm. that infinity exists on a mathematical existence, but that's concept. We're not talking about the real world. Um, Edward Kasner and James Newman said that existence in the mathematical sense is wholly different from the existence of objects in the physical world. The, the infinite certainly does not exist in the same sense that we say there are fish in the sea. And why not the universe? I mean, think about it. Uh, Calkins says himself that the composite space, um, it has there in the composite space, there's only a finite amount of information it can hold. So it, that would 
that would obviously suggest that there's a beginning and that's finite and that infinity doesn't exist. I think also, though, as you were saying, that the Grim Reaper paradox is a better formulation, but um, I don't. I do not hold to a beer B theory of time because I have no reason to. Um, I do have a lot of reasons to hold. I mean, do you hold, hold on to God being omniscient? Well, I mean, that's that's a whole other topic that I'm not going to no, get into it, right now. No, <laughs> because it applies. Because no, that's, no, if, it really if, God, if God's omniscient, then there's a complete actual set in existence right now. Actually, that but that's a def, that depends on what you're defining by infinite, or that if God's infinite and there's an actual infinite set right now, we're talking about God being qualitatively infinite, not quantitatively infinite. Now, I'm not it's totally different. Not talking about God being infinite. I'm talking about God's knowledge. God, it, it, even so, it's qualitatively it's different. So we would this would take a whole nother t- topic, a whole nother discussion to get to if we if can't not, we can't go there with that because I'm, it's a I'm whole gonna, it's, it relates to a whole different argument that jumps into the theology of who we think god is i'm <laughs> gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna have to stop you guys i'm gonna let uh let, let's see i'm gonna let you go uh give maybe some closing remarks david then jordan and then we're gonna wrap this up i know you guys could go on forever we'll probably shut yeah, the, we probably, we'll probably shut the mics off and keep talking yeah. but <laughs> but um yeah, I think the, the, the Kalam still holds in light of even what Jordan presented here. Uh, I think he's going to make a lot of good points. He does. He, there's a lot of true things we're saying. And you know what? One day, if his theory proves right, it will the, the Kalam will no longer exist. But I think the reason that the Kalam is still in existence is because there are good reasons to believe, begin that the universe began to exist. And we have good evidence that we think that whatever begins to exist has a cause. So overall, I think it's a good argument. I still think it's a sound argument. And I think that we're we're good with it. So and it does make more sense on theism than than naturalism, so to speak. So, but like I said, if we're just keeping it simple, you know, we're just using calls in a general sense. So I, I won't make any implications on that to spare Jordan the 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 heartache there that he would try to blast me with. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Jordan. So, in this debate, I'm not the one defending the argument. I'm the one objecting to the argument which means the burden of proof doesn't lie on me i have that happy position of not being the one making the assertion and so it's not my job to assert that this is necessarily false because i'm not making that claim it is my job to show doubt and if there is doubt that means the syllogism isn't demonstrated as true and so it may very well be that this argument is correct it may be that the universe started to exist it may very well be that the that everything that begins to exist has a cause those could be true but it's not my, I don't have to show that they're false. And I think that my interlocutor hasn't shown that they're true. And if my interlocutor hasn't shown that they're true, then we can't use this argument to say, this shows that God exists. It's not true. It's not known to be true anyway. All right, hey, thanks a lot, guys. We got some good stuff coming up in the future. Uh, Nick Peters has agreed to come on the show and debate Jordan on the resurrection. (laughs) Now, Nick Peters is a pretty big name. He's debated Dan Parker, Dan Barker recently, and Dan Barker has debated William Lane Craig. So we got some two degrees of separation. We got some big names coming in. Uh, Hopefully, in April sometime, uh, Nick is going to come on the show. So stay tuned, everyone. Uh, We're also trying to get uh, a guy by the name of Drew. Cycle. Oh my goodness! A guy. The well, guy. Not coming save it. Save it. Save it for. Save it for when you yeah. got it right. Yeah. <laughs> he does. The, Don't uh, butcher it. He does it, the Hinge podcast and the Room for Doubt podcast, and has has had like um, some of the biggest names like Habermas and Lacona on the show. So I'm talking to him on Twitter. He's probably going to be coming on the show. So stay tuned if you like apologetics. We're going to be getting into theology and maybe politics also in the future. Uh, make sure to subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube, we're also on iTunes and Google Play. So until next time, everyone, peace out. You have something you want to say?
I'm gonna say I'm on the Virginia Apologetics Union. So Virginia Apologetics Union go. on Facebook. Do you have anywhere? You need to start a blog or something, bro. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Facebook, and if you friend me, I'll probably delete it. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very generous. All right, everyone, until next time, uh, thanks for listening, thanks for watching. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Proselytize or Apostatize. I hope it was helpful for you in your journey toward truth. One thing you can do to really help us out is leave a rating and review. It helps other people discover the show. This episode was edited by Christian Sconewald with music by Kyle Skriloff. All right, see you guys next time.